I once saw a dog knock over a whole jug of apple tango with his erection. I've generally not enjoyed a picnic since. Hello, friends, and welcome along. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> Special episode of Have You Seen This? The podcast that genuinely couldn't give a rat's ass how you pronounce microwave. Joining me, as always, the dancer and indeed prancer of the cinematic universe, Mr. Breen and Mr. Mercer. Good morning, fellows. Morning, everybody. How are we doing? Morning, Ben. How are you doing? You right? Very good. Thank you very much. Do you like the, uh, because it's the Christmas special, I brought a fireplace and some slow Christmas jazz. I brought them along with me and you can definitely all see and hear it right now. And it's not going to be added in post. I can feel it warm my cockles as we speak. No expense spared, mate. Can you please put your cockles away? <laughs> <laughs> the reason we do this on a video link is so you can see my cockles specifically. Oh, that's why you do that. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and anyway, what an introduction. Uh, we have a guest in the shape of Aidan McCaffrey. Aidan is a stand-up comedian and writer who won the David Nobbs Memorial Trust Comedy Writing Competition in 2018. In 2020, he started the Movie News Padanza, a weekly movie news and mashups podcast. Aidan, good morning. Hello. How's it going? Very good. Thanks. You well? Yes, good. Thanks for mentioning the prize that I won because Ben gets annoyed at how much I mention it. But uh, Does he? Seeing as it's the only prize I might ever win, I intend to... <laughs> have it etched onto my gravestone so at least it's mentioned <laughs> it as much as i mention bear which is available on amazon prime oh and we've already found the first thing i'm chopping out of the edit <laughs> excellent well great thanks for joining us and uh, yeah let's crack on so from the last episode we finished with a question which means we start with the same question which is what is the highest grossing christmas film of all time at the worldwide box office oh i think i know this so first of all we've have received some answers oh yeah chris powell got in touch via whatsapp and guest at jim Kerr the Grinch from 2000. Interesting. Julie Rastignite commented with her answer of Home Alone 2 on the Facebook feed, but she also said Paul Cracks are up, so I'm definitely right to question her judgment. <laughs> Julie, just ignore him. And a big shout out to last week's guest and friend of the show, Tristan Cooper, who absolutely nailed this. Not only did he get it right, he got the bonus point for being within $15 million, and he also told me what's number two. He wow. also has access to all those figures. Apparently, he didn't look it up. Well, And Paul Google Breen, I tend to trust Tristan. <laughs> I did not hide the fact that I Googled that uh, that one particular answer. Yeah, I had an issue with this because, oh. like, again, I think I mentioned on the pod last week, how do you define a Christmas film? Anyway, any guesses? <laughs> no. Don't open that can of worms. Anything with Christmas in, or anything that's released around Christmas, I think. I have no clue about this, so I'm just going to say Die Hard. I know what Aiden's going to say, and I think he might be right, but I want to go in with Home Alone, because obviously that was a massive behemoth when it came out, but I'd have no idea how much it earned, so... Okay, Die Hard, Home Alone, and... Uh, my guess is Iron Man 3. It's not a guess, an educated guess. And I think and I think it grossed one point three billion dollars. Iron Man three, definitely not a Christmas movie. I mean, for a start. It is. It's set at Christmas. Well, it's not on my list of top Christmas movies, so incorrect. <laughs> Home Alone is a super guess, and that is in fact number two. Oh. If you consider inflation, possibly yes, but no. The real answer from twenty eighteen, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, is the animated version of The Grinch grossing $511 million. 
Your faces are priceless. <laughs> I had no idea that was that big. Home Alone is at number two, $476 million worldwide. And Jim Carrey's version of The Grinch sits at number three, grossing $345 million. And for those of you that are interested, Love Actually isn't on the list of highest grossing Christmas films. Of course not. Good. <laughs> at $248 million, it would place sixth above Elf and below Polar Express. So there we go. So. I think it should be below a lot of things. Okay, well, technically speaking, Iron Man 3 then did make more money than The Grinch. It's definitely a Christmas film. Definitely not a Christmas movie. Anything with Christmas in, definitively, Die Hard has solved this argument. So anything that features Christmas or has, like, sleigh bells in the soundtrack, it's a Christmas film. If it leans into Christmassy things like Die Hard, then it, yeah. Die Hard is Iron Man 3. It's come so. on. Let's all agree that The Grinch is a Christmas film. Iron Man 3 is not, and that's a point to me. It is a point to you. <laughs> I think that's 3-2 now. 4-2 now. Oh, is it? Okay. Yes. Moving on to our regular show pre-started, which is our big picks from the small screen. Things that we've watched from little screen streaming services, etc. Aidan, what's been entertaining you over the last few weeks? So the uh, the last film I watched was Mank, the new David Fincher film about Herman J. Mankiewicz, who co-wrote Citizen Kane, or wrote Citizen Kane, if you believe David Fincher. And I love David Fincher. He's one of my favourite directors, but I kind of feel like a bit like The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, this is Fincher in technical exercise mode. It looks stunning, but I personally don't think it revealed anything we didn't already know about that period of Hollywood. And also, it's been disproven over time, the myth that Mankiewicz wrote Citizen Kane solo. Pauline Kael started it and various people, including Peter Bogdanovich, have disproved it. So basically, I sort of found it, it looked nice, but it didn't really engage me. I would have enjoyed it more, I think, if Gary Oldman started old and slowly de-aged into a baby, like in uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. But alas, that didn't happen. So sorry, Fincher, I'm out. I hated Curious Case of Benjamin Button. That's a shame that you're comparing it to that because I was really looking forward to seeing Mank. Paul, have you seen Mank yet? Yes, it was actually on my list of things that I've watched this week. I actually really, really enjoyed it. I totally agree. I mean, it, it's a fiction. That's the way I approached watching it because, as you've said, the story that's told has been disproved that he wrote this on his own. Yeah. But purely as a fiction, I loved it and I loved, again, as you said, it's it's very much a technical exercise in filmmaking. But I, I loved the fact that it was shot very much in the style of Citizen Kane. It was in black and white. And I also liked there was there was some wonderful little touches in nods back to 35 mil in the fact that there were cigarette burns in the top right hand corner of the screen. Oh, amazing. And ever so slight jumps in the soundtrack and the image as in effect the reels changed as we used to when we used to watch 35 mil. And I, and I loved that. And there was that nostalgia feel. The sound design on it was very much of that era as well and it it's very difficult to describe but it, it sounded like proper sound insulation in cinemas and it used to have these big vast caverns of rooms like the cinema i used to go to had a, a thousand seat balcony so it's a huge barn so you always had this ever so slight echo and there seemed to be that built into the sound design yeah i i, I absolutely loved it i i thought it was a fantastic film but it was very surprising that it was fincher because it doesn't have traditionally obviously with any fincher thing there's this dark uh, undertone throughout and it didn't it was surprisingly in black and white and for the way it was shot it didn't quite have that and I, I was interested in Mankovic's his story and but as I say I approached it from the perspective of a fiction rather than uh, than a factual telling of, of, of that period when Citizen Kane was written so mm. yeah I really liked there it there were bits that blew my mind there's a shot where a car is leaving his like uh, farmhouse and the camera's behind Gary Oldman and it sort of pans around them as they go away. It's not like a particularly complex special effect, but it, it was so amazingly well recreated the feel and technique 
of how th- it would have been shot at that time. Like, it doesn't even look real. Actually, there's a weird artifice to it, but it's an artifice you would only have found in that period of Hollywood. And But maybe that speaks to why I had a problem with it, which is if I'm amazed at a shot of two people watching a car drive away, <laughs> I'm not thinking about the story. Yeah, yeah that makes so, sense. Um, what else have you watched? Um, I finished watching the Michaela Cole 12-part drama, comedy drama. I'm not sure how you'd want to label it. I May Destroy You. It's on iPlayer, and it's about a writer in London. First episode, she goes on a night out, and she wakes up bruised and is not sure what's happened. And it slowly begins to dawn on her that she's been had the worst possible sexual assault committed on her. And the next 11 episodes are basically how she comes to terms with that. But it's it's, it's bigger than that. It's very much like a comprehensive look at how consent works in modern dating yeah. and sort of modern sexual mores. And it's stunning, guys. Like, I cannot think of how much more comprehensive this show would be looking at the black, the white, and the grey of what constitutes consent. Now, there's so many moments in it where you're like, what do I think of that scene? I don't know what I think of that. Like a character will blow up another character for something that's happened during sexual discourse. And you're sitting there thinking, has that person done something wrong? Don't get me wrong. There's there's certain moments where people definitely do stuff that's bad. But there's so many other moments where you realize, God, there's like, there's so much gray area here. It's amazing. And she is incredible in the lead role. She's funny. She gets the dramatic bits correct. So she's clearly someone who's going to go and blow up the world somehow with their talent because it's uh, it's great. I'd highly recommend it. Nice one. Cool. Paul, do you want to carry on as we dovetailed with Mank? I also watched Brandon Cronenberg's film Possessor. Oh, that looks horrific. It's, wow. It's a really very violent, very over-the-top film in places, but it ostensibly tells the story of an agent who works for, you never really get the definition of the secretive organisation, who take their, what ostensibly is an assassin, they inhabit the mind of a person in the life of the person that's going to needs to be assassinated mm. and use that person in the assassination and then pull them out of their mind at the end after the job's been completed. And this is the story of when the assassin gets stuck fundamentally in the in the mind of one of these people and follows that story. It's unbelievably violent in places. And you can see Brandon Cronenberg is obviously David Cronenberg's son. So there's a body horror that you've seen in Cronenberg films yeah. throughout the decades and he's picked up certainly those traits I thought it was a really interesting film to watch it's it's not for you Mercer <laughs> I'm uh, not surprised <laughs> sounds so festive can't wait uh, if you're squeamish no it's not not one for you but I found it a really interesting project very low budget it reminded me very much of early Cronenberg in terms of the look and feel of it so I, I would recommend it to people who like that type of thing but be warned it's it's very very strong and finally I finally got round to watching Queen and Slim oh yeah uh, right. great which I really enjoyed. It's, it's a bit long, but performances are, are wonderful. It's beautifully shot. Uh, tells a really interesting and important story. I think from the you know, from the the basic premise, which is all too real, sadly, uh, in this day and age. But it's definitely definitely worth a look and it's on prime at the moment so yeah that's what i was watching this week i mean i love queen and slim and spoiler alert it may come up later on when we discuss our top films of 2020 where's the christmas love guys come on what happened to all these christmas films that people have been watching (laughs) i'm like on a massive christmas bender at the moment i can help with this okay sort of i've been on a real real christmas kick so i've watched some great 
Christmas movies. Some of my favorites, but I'm going to keep it brief. And what I'm going to do, because we're going to get, we're getting to that point of year where people are sitting around, people are getting bored and they sit down and watch movies. So I'm going to focus on the bad. And what I'm going to do is I hope it helps people avoid some real guff over the holidays. So Christmas wise, I watched Christmas with the Cranks from 2004, Tim Allen. That's meant to be like one of the worst Christmas films ever made. It is without question, one of the worst Christmas films ever made. Why did you watch it? It's Christmas. I, like I said, I've been on a real Christmas kick and it was on and I watched it and I really wish I hadn't. So if you're sitting around with your family on Boxing Day and you think, ah, oh, Tim Allen, Jamie Lee Curtis could be a good movie. Don't watch it. It's complete shit. <laughs> Moving on to another film you should definitely avoid. Now, this was a film that I was really excited about watching uh, in the cinema because I love the music of the Beatles and is Yesterday. Did anybody catch Yesterday? Yes, yeah. I saw And was yeah. everybody else as horribly disappointed as I was because it is awful? No. Oh, no. I'm yeah, I'm on the fence. I don't I don't think it was amazing. It suffers from Danny Boyle is just going all in on the weird slick visuals and the bit where he's in a tunnel and Beatles lyrics fly down the middle of the tunnel <laughs> in a big type font in these awful CGI letters. It totally lost me. But do you know what? It's charming. You guys have a friend who when you watch films you think X person's gonna hate this. When that bit with the lyrics came up, I thought to myself, <laughs> Mercer's going to absolutely hate this bit. But it, it, it's a theme that recurs through. So they're stood outside Lime Street Station in Liverpool, and the same thing happens. Giant red CGI letters tell you it's Lime Street Station. It's like, well, we, yeah, it's, the sign's already on the front of the station, dude. We can see it. I was going to say, Robert Carlyle's uh, cameo as John Lennon was astonishing. Um, was it? Okay. I thought it was good. I liked it. I agree with the, the John Lennon stuff was fun. I actually think it's weird for a Richard Curtis film. The rom element of the rom-com doesn't work, which is unusual for him, because I don't believe anyone would hang out with Lily James that much and not just be like, you know, totally taken with her. So I just didn't believe the rom element. But the con works. I thought... Uh, who shows up as the record executive? Kate McKinnon. She's really funny in it. She made me laugh. In fact, I laughed so loud in the cinema that my wife told me off. And I had to turn <laughs> to her and say, you know this is a comedy, right? But she was embarrassed that I was the only person laughing. <laughs> exactly. In a room full of people, you were the only person laughing. So this, this film just misses <laughs> on all fronts. And we're expected to believe that somehow, without the Beatles, Coca-Cola doesn't exist and cigarettes don't exist. Yeah, it plays hard and fast with that idea, that concept, because essentially you wouldn't have you wouldn't have Coldplay, you wouldn't have Britpop, you wouldn't have modern music without the Beatles having existed. And you could argue that there might have been another band that took their place eventually, but the film doesn't really do that. So I don't believe a world where yesterday no. doesn't exist, but Fix You by Coldplay does. But Oasis don't. That's the weird thing. They, they, they go out of their way to say Oasis never happened. But then Coldplay do. You're right. It's strange. Yeah, exactly. So we all agree to film shit. Great. Moving on. Um, <laughs> and finally, so a phrase that Mercer has popularized and used to bat around weekly, but we haven't heard it for a while. And this can be heavily applied to 2019's Rocket Man, which is tonally a complete mess. I hope you all agree with me on this one. I, again, massively disappointed. The parts where it delved into Elton John's life and it was more of a biopic was great. And then it breaks into these very weird, theatrically staged, very, very poor numbers, which I it, it just completely threw me off. I was really bought into the film, really enjoying it, loving the Elton John story. And then it breaks into this very weird... It, it, 
totally a mess. I did. I just didn't didn't get what they were doing with with making this film. Interesting. I disagree. I preferred it. Well, I'll edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> I I preferred it a lot more to the Bohemian Rhapsody film because I felt like Rocket Man at least was yeah. trying to do something yeah. a bit different and a bit more interesting. Whereas Bohemian Rhapsody has some of the blandest dialogue you've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mind it. I thought it was alright. I thought Taron Egerton was amazing as Elton John. Didn't mind it. Thought Taron Egerton was great. However, totally a mess. That's all. I love how it starts off with him walking into the anonymous group in full costume because it's a really yeah. bold way of going, this isn't going to be a conventional biopic. This is going to be slightly heightened. And I really have a problem with Wikipedia biopics, like the Iron Lady or stuff like that, where it's just ticking off Wikipedia sub paragraphs. Do you know what I mean? I really like the fact that it created this weird, not entirely successfully, yeah. but boldly tried to create this musical fantasia out of uh, his life. I thought it was a good fun. Did you like it, Paul? Yeah, I really did. I really enjoyed it. As I say, I, I preferred it to Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm. Yeah, for me, it works. Yeah. yeah. You're on. You're on your own, Hammond. <laughs> which, is, which is fine, which is a theme I'm entirely used to on this podcast. So yeah, they're my three to avoid. Uh, and also, if you've got kids, Frozen 2. Don't watch Frozen wow. 2. Have you liked anything you've watched? Have you just watched, you've just sat there in misery. Are you just turning into the Grinch? <laughs> I, I, I love the Grinches. Grinch is possibly my favourite Christmas movie ever, apart from Scrooged. Scrooged is easily, easily my number one Christmas film of all time. Elf? Elf used to be up there. Probably number three. Let me, let me, let me see what else we've watched. Hold on a second. What about Iron Man 3? Where did that get in your Christmas ranking? <laughs> uh, it's not a Christmas film. Hey, number one. It's, not a Christmas film. it's a Christmas film. We'll, we'll finish with one that I did enjoy. And this is Arkansas on Netflix. Vince Vaughn's new movie fantastic film it is written and directed by clark jute who you'll know from hot tub time machine but you can definitely tell he wrote the part for himself because he gives himself some very slick dialogue and um, very similar to yesterday uh, a girl falls for him that never in a million years would fall for him but he wrote and directed the movie so why wouldn't he do that for himself he, he just seems a little bit confused he's kind of written himself some tarantino style dialogue and he really wants it to be a coen brothers movie but he's never going to achieve that on his first pass. Um, but it is genuinely a very, very good movie. So if you want it, and I really like Vince Vaughn in a mm. straight role. I think Vince Vaughn is excellent in this. So Arkansas on Netflix, watch that. Not a family film, but you know, put the kids to bed and give it a watch. Nice. Well, you mentioned it already. And it's your, I didn't realize it was your favorite Christmas film of all time, but I watched 1988's modern retelling of Christmas Carol, Scrooge starring Bill Murray. Do you know it's a PG? It's so dark. Yeah, Some of the crazy. ghosts... There's a moment in this where he's in the future segment and it cuts to Bill Murray inside a coffin being burnt alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> PG. <laughs> Family-friendly flair. <laughs> Obviously, Murray is absolutely fantastic in the role. The first moment after he sees his first ghost and he calls Karen Ellen for the first time and like just he, he picks up the phone, rings her, he looks up at his watch and he goes, sorry, I know it's been... 15 years but I just little moments like that are just absolutely fantastic he's having a great time I watched the wonderful ode to capitalism that is Jingle All The Way which teaches us the true meaning behind Christmas that you just need to buy shit that's all you need to do that's what it all means if people haven't seen this uh, crass corporate cash-in it stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as a neglectful dad as he tries to track down one of the last Toberman toys that exists uh, on Christmas Day as the most popular toy it's actually loosely inspired by Toy Story because when that film came out everyone wanted the Buzz Lightyear doll and for 90 1995's Christmas and you couldn't get it for love or money and so Chris Columbus one of the producers in the film funnels some of his experience into this script it's such a weird film it's one of those things that like got critically mauled at the time that it came up but actually I think people are sort of changing their minds about this maybe in 20 years time we'll all be singing the praises of Christmas at the Cranks Ben 
But, oh, <laughs> that's not a future I want to be a part. Schwarzenegger is, he's just, he's dialing up to 11 all the way through the film. There's a great bit where um, Ted Melton's character is uh, eating some cookies, basically trying to cut in on Schwarzenegger's wife. And he's, and Schwarzenegger's just screaming down the phone, don't eat my cookies. It's, <laughs> it's mental. Like, totally, like, they would have been arrested in seconds. There's just lots of really weird dark shit in this film. But uh, yeah, it's, it's actually quite, it's good fun. I've, I've totally changed, I've come around on it. It's great. Finally, I watched Home Alone 2, which is a charmless beat for beat remake of the film first Home Alone film. Tim Curry as the hotel concierge is pretty good, but like when Curry and his hapless band of, of hotel clerks are, are sort of fooled by a TV playing in the room next door with an open door, they believe that there is generally a gun-wielding maniac in the next room. I just don't buy it for one second. Yeah, really terrible. And Trump's in it, so. And do you know why Donald Trump's in it? Do you know what? I don't. So... They use the Trump Hotel oh, in right. the movie, and Donald Trump only gave them permission to use his hotel if he had a part in the film. Grim. That is, that's tipped me over the edge. I wasn't sure about him up to now, but now I hate <laughs> <laughs> mm. Oh, these cookies! I gotta get the recipe from Les. Put that cookie down now! Moving on then to Mercer's section and uh, a fairly packed section this week, finally, because there is some news. There's no box office news, but there is some movie news. Yes, there's a lot of stuff happening, uh, mainly revolving around the fallout to the Warner's shock announcement. Obviously, we had Christopher Nolan's hot take last week. So Dennis Villeneuve has now come out and said that his Dune is by far the best movie he has ever made, brag. My team and I devoted more than three years of our lives to make it a unique big screen experience. Our movie's image and sound were meticulously designed to be seen in theatres. I strongly believe the future of the cinema will be on the big screen, no matter what any Wall Street dilettante says. Ouch. Yeah, so basically, everyone's pissed off with Warners. I don't think there's a single person who's come out and said, this is a really good idea. Uh, Paul, it's been a week. Have you calmed down a bit? Do you, do you have anything to add to this now? No, other than that you're going to need to edit this out. <laughs> what a bunch of... <laughs> Uh, please definitely edit that out. Nope, leaving it. I think I went on a length the week before mm. uh, with regard to this and, and my disgust at what they're doing. And, you know, the the backlash is now starting to happen. Is it, I think we talked about Legendary Pictures are possibly going to be suing for one of the movies they're releasing. And mm. I think there will be more filmmakers and more smaller studios that will be suing Warner Brothers for you know, lack of revenue because of their totalitarian decision to do what they're doing in terms of putting things out on HBO Max at the same time. I think it's an appalling decision. Mm. I think Villeneuve has, has said it's an amazing sort of speech, if you like, because it impacts everybody that was involved. So everything was designed mm. for cinema auditoriums. The sound, the picture, the special effects, everything is designed for that size screen in that size room. That's all going to be lost. And that will impact yeah. reviews because people will start putting their, as we do, we review things uh, on the, the, unfortunately on a smaller screen at the moment, and we review it on that basis. And you lose a lot of impact in those those bigger films when you watch them in that environment. It's going to impact on the whole cinema industry across the world, yeah. and not only obviously in in, in, dis in distribution, in exhibition. Uh, cinemas are going to close. We've seen cinemas that have already closed as a result of this that are never going to reopen again. Yeah, and it's it's an appalling decision and i genuinely hope that this comebacks to bite them in the ass sooner rather than later and the other studios don't follow suit I and mean, everyone we were all holding our breath on thursday to see what disney were going to announce on their their big announcement day and i think we're going to be doing that with all the studios going forward and i, I really really hope that this falls apart for warner brothers very soon and that a mm. lot of filmmakers and small you know studios really push back on this um in you know, legal ways as well as 
very much vocalizing. I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about, but you were talking about a cinema experience that is like top notch. I know for a fact that certainly myself and Aiden, we've had experiences in the cinema that let's face it, have been a little subpar, whether or not it's down to the audience making noise or to do with the equipment, maybe not being, uh, you know, kept up the way that it should do. I mean, Aiden, you've had some shocking cinema experiences in the past. Do you think it's fair to consider all cinema experiences as the golden standard? Look, I'm a big fan of the cinema going experience and I like you guys, I'm really disappointed by some of these announcements. There are undoubtedly horrific cinema experience. I won't diss a particular chain, but there's a chain that I had a annual membership with that I left because I went to watch The Shape of Water and it was so badly projected. I honestly, it's no exaggeration. I, I couldn't figure out what was happening on screen. And I'd experienced that with them before where it was a little bit too dim, I could tell. But this was like the straw that broke the camel's back. I remember seeing an advert for The Shape of Water on TV after I saw it. And I was like, what? Where's all that colour? Where are all those greens and yellows and blues? I, I'm not exaggerating. I, it was so dark. <laughs> and I'd my repeated complaints to this chain had just yeah. fallen on deaf ears. And I switched uh, my annual membership to a different chain. And also, to be honest, tend to gravitate more towards um, the more slick independence. I've been careful not to mention chains <laughs> And actually, Picture House is one of the ones that I uh, frequent, and I'm very happy with how they mm. do it. But it's just certainly not true of all the other chains. The other thing I'll say is the home cinema experience isn't... The fact is we we fell in love with a lot of the films we love through that. People like Quentin Tarantino, who are always banging on about celluloid and film and projection... We all, Tarantino's on record as having fallen in love with a lot of the films he, he loves by watching them on VHS from the video store he worked at. So it is possible, you know, even in the 80s when home entertainment isn't what it is now, that you could have a joyous experience sitting at home watching film. And I, I have, and I'm sure all of you guys do have, you know, a plush 40 inch or more LCD TV with a big sound bar or Dolby surround or, or whatever it is. It can be good, but I don't think anything quite matches that experience of, of going and seeing something on the big screen. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's too special an experience. And I think once all this COVID nonsense ends, there'll be a lot of pent-up consumer demand for everything, whether it's going to the theatre, going to the pub with your mates, going to the cinema. So I do think it's going to come back, but there's no doubt that what, particularly Warner Brothers, also Disney are doing right now, does represent a bit of a threat. Mm. I just think, in terms of the FCPA, if, you, if you're Simon Brown, you're banging your head against the wall, or whoever the US equivalent is, because your, your job is to protect content. Now, when Warner Brothers are going to release a deluge of content, into people's living rooms as a premiere, how the hell are you protecting any sort of content when that's happening? We, we know what happened with Mulan and it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to be yeah. rife through 2021. With HBO Max releasing things simultaneously in the cinemas and in people's homes, well, the cinemas aren't going to open till mid to late afternoon. And I absolutely guarantee all of this content will be available online before the cinemas open. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I fear for, for next year um, if other people jump on this bandwagon. And I hope people like David Villeneuve and to an extent Chris Nolan are now listened to when these people are saying our content is made mm. for the big screen and this is where you should be enjoying it. Well, yes, as uh, we mentioned already, Disney, uh, the Investor School, I stayed up like an idiot. I stayed up last night watching a Twitter feed when I could have actually just live streamed the Investor Conference. I didn't even know that was an option. So I was just constantly refreshing Twitter trying to get these announcements. There are 15 different animated and live action films that are coming straight to Disney Plus. The bulk of it was actually just TV series. I've got the list in front of me. It is extensive. I mean, if you like Star Wars and Marvel, you, you're covered. If this announcement was made uh, straight after Star Wars, a Stolo story, I would have been a bit concerned. But the fact that The Mandalorian is 
absolutely phenomenal television right now. I'm actually well pumped for most of these TV series. Obviously, we've got the Ahsoka TV series that's coming, but also Rangers of the New Republic. And so they're going to be set within the world of The Mandalorian. But Obi-Wan Kenobi is the thing I'm really excited for. You know, as a prequel apologist, I am so pumped for this. And the fact that Hayden Christensen is coming back to be inside the Darth Vader suit, I mean fine throw him a bone i guess he's probably not got much work right now why not do it won't he just be a glorified mannequin ben i've watched the prequels recently he already was a glorified mannequin <laughs> the star wars films as well patty jenkins is going to do a rose squadron film i am so excited for this and her announcement uh, video was a really yeah. nice touch it clearly she's very passionate about the project yeah they didn't mention uh, ryan johnson's proposed trilogy that hasn't officially been scrapped but oh yeah we haven't had any news of that since last year i forgot about do that. you think that's still a thing oh no it feels like it's been brushed into the carpet yeah doesn't it? Uh, so with with Marvel, there were a shitload of Marvel films, thankfully, all coming out in theatres, which is great. But then, yes, there's lots of Disney Plus excuses that are coming. So Hocus Pocus 2, they heard your calls, Hammond. The sequel's got the green light. <laughs> Not sure I ever asked for Hocus Pocus 2. <laughs> Pretty sure you did. Three Men and the Baby, Cheaper by the Dozen, a new sister act film, Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. Uh, Pinocchio, right. We're now at the point where Robert Zemeckis projects, ones even starring Tom Hanks, are now just chirfed out on Disney Plus with little fanfare. That's how bad he has become, because let's face it the guy has not made a good film in nearly a decade tagged onto the sort of the investicle uh, disney announced that they're going to release raya and the last dragon directly to disney plus in a similar way to the mulan which they did this year so in march 2021 you have the option to pay a premium price and it will release simultaneously in cinemas and on the platform as well. Do you think the film exhibitors who don't like breaking the window, do you think they're still going to show this? I guess with Warner and now this, they're going to have to to really look at this release window. Isn't the problem that they've got the cinemas over a barrel here? And that the fact is cinemas need to show things. So if, they, if a film studio says, mm. well, you can have it for three weeks, but then we're putting it on streaming, maybe they just don't have a choice. Yeah, I think it's, it's difficult because obviously the, the CEO of the second biggest chain in the world Cineworld has publicly come out and said that you know, they will never screen a film that breaches the theatrical window, and has you know he he doesn't seem to be w- willing to compromise with regard to things like that. And some of the other cinema chains have done the same thing. So I, I don't know. It's the world has changed with regard to exhibition. So it may be mm. time to reevaluate. But whatever happens, if 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 it is reevaluated, is to the detriment of the cinema industry. Uh, I have a film podcast. Oh, oh, oh. So it's now time to turn our attention onto our guest, and it's down to Paul. Over to you, mate. Hi, Aiden. Hi. So, yes, let's start with with something. So, what started your love of film for you? Where did, where did your love of film come from? I've got memories of watching lots of films as a child over and over and over again. But I sort of weirdly often can't remember the first time I watched them. Does anyone else have this experience? Like, I can't remember watching Back to the Future for the first time, but I just do remember watching it constantly. My mum remembers watching it. She said she rented it out, put it on the TV and said, me and my brother didn't say anything for two hours. We just stared mouth agog at the screen and I, we, I just weirdly can't remember that <laughs> i mean it pretty much has to be back to the future ghostbusters oh and teenage mutant hero slash ninja turtles so it must have been those things and i was like a full-on film nerd kid do you remember those books who used to get like halliwell's films guide yeah. uh, virgin film guide i had them when i was like eight or nine and i'd go through them and I just knew, I'd like I'd never seen The Godfather, but I could tell you, yeah, The Godfather won three Oscars, best film, best actor, best adapted screenplay. I was like eight and nine. And it meant that when I actually then became a teenager, 
I was aware of everything I should be watching, even though I hadn't seen it. So I think that's the route I took into film. Was Back to the Future, was that your first experience in cinema? Can you remember what you saw oh, first? The first film I saw at the cinema was Ghostbusters 2 for my fifth birthday. And I remember my mum saying, you're going to the pictures with your brother. And I had no idea what that meant. And I remember visualising a room with pictures of Ghostbusters. Like it was some sort of weird Ghostbusters museum of like Ghostbusters artwork. <laughs> so yeah, and then, I, and then I have a memory of watching that with my friends on the screen. And I, I don't really have much recollection of the film other than it clearly woke up some you know, Ghostbusters enthusiasm in me somehow. And uh, yeah. So obviously you've got your own podcast, The Movie News Bonanza, which is very enjoyable. So how did you come to start the podcast? And and obviously there's a lot, it's just yourself. and There's a lot of production that goes on. So what goes into producing each time? I, uh, I used to have a couple of other podcasts that were sort of sitcom- they were like uh, audio sitcoms. I even recorded one of them live in pubs in London to try and create the feel of a Radio 4 sitcom with a live audience. And it was so much work, both from a writing point of view and a production and an organisational point of view. really stressed me out. And with the Pedanza, I kind of wanted to... What's the simplest way I can do a podcast? And I figured just me doing an irreverent monologue, a bit like I would do in stand-up about that week's film news, would be the way to do it. However, you've hit on a point, a good point there. The way I'm doing it is really difficult and time-consuming to <laughs> do. Because, one, I can barely speak. Like, for someone who <laughs> makes speaking my chosen profession, I can barely string a word together. I smack my lips before everything I say. And when I hear myself doing that in headphones, I don't get how I'm married. I don't get why Ben is friends with me. I don't get why you've invited me to the podcast because I smack my lips constantly. So it takes me like half the week just to edit out all the rubbish way I talk and to get it into a listenable thing. And then on top of that, I've insisted on throwing audio movie mashups into the mix. A bit like Ben does on this podcast. I do one where it's the watch scene from Pulp Fiction. But instead of Christopher Walken talking about shoving his dad's watch up his ass, he's talking about putting a lightsaber up his ass. Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi's a lightsaber. <laughs> Very funny. And then you put a Star Wars skull on it. You've kind of got like a fun little sketch. So if you kind of like movie mashups and silly sketches like that and just my irreverent take on what's going on in the film, uh, please tune in. It's called The Movie News Bedanzo and it's on all good and abhorrent podcasting apps. I really recommend it to everyone. So now, this is a question almost impossible to answer, but do you have a favourite film of all time? I have four, and this is a bit of a cop-out. Because the thing is, like, how do you say compare Back to the Future to The Godfather? Like, they're both perfect. It's like chalk and cheese. It's worse than that. It's like Stuart Lee says, it's chalk and despair. They're so different. Um, <laughs> if I'll say One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for the basic reason that it's the one of the four that I constantly cite, it's the one I've watched the most recently. I love that film. My brother introduced it to me when I was a, a teenager, although I fully suspect that at the age of seven, I could have told you that it won Oscars for Best Film, Director, Actor, <laughs> Actress, and Adapted Screenplay. It's great. It's it's obviously quite dark, but it's quite funny. It's a fun film to watch because you do get that rompish element of Jack Nicholson just coming in like a bull in a china shop to this sort of buttoned up environment that Nurse Ratched has created and seeing the war of wills between him and her as bleakly as it ends is great. Mm. And there is, even though that ending is dark, there is a positive release from it because it's got yep. this whole message about like not letting your spark of your spark, your charisma get crushed by the system, by the man. It's very, very counterculture. All of the chief's speeches about his dad and like having his soul drained from him and how they're doing that to you now, McMurphy. And then what he ultimately does at the end to rectify that situation. It, it's a bit bleak, but it's also one of the risk of spoilerizing it. 
it's one of the great cinematic releases is the chief picking up that sink and throwing it through the window it's Oh, it's so good. It's amazing. Mm. Movie, it really is. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we're going to the opposite end of the scale with a question we always like to ask our guests. Do you have a guilty pleasure? There's no such thing as a guilty pleasure, mate. Next question. <laughs> You're going to say this. <laughs> it's my hobby horse. It's my hill to die on the whole uh, guilty pleasure thing. I'd like to take issue with it because I think guilty pleasure, it suggests that you're subscribing to someone else's opinion when, when someone says guilty pleasure. Right. That's why I take issue with it. If the question mm. is, what film do I love that everyone hates, then it's a conversation Mercer and I have had a billion times. It's all Star Trek Into Darkness. Yes, please. Love that film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it gets slated. And I think the main reason it gets slated is because... It's bad. You know, Star Trek fans, of which I am one, sort of take issue with the way it deals with and treads on the mythos of Star Trek or, or in or rehashes it in a bad way. I think you can approach these films in one of two ways. You can approach it as a Star Trek fan, or you can approach it as a cinema fan. I do genuinely think that that film, as a just straight-up action blockbuster, is pretty top-end. Like The set pieces are all amazing. It's basically mostly character-led, but you don't really get in those films. And that cast is so perfectly well cast for those roles. I do get that plot-wise, it starts to fall apart in a big way in the third act. But honestly, I get a major kick out of it every time. And I get an even bigger kick out of arguing with Ben all the time about how he's wrong about it. So. Fantastic. So, Aidan, I don't know if you just want to plug your podcast again. The Movie News Pedanza. Uh, you can get it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any podcast app you can think of. It should be on there. If it's not, just at me at Aiden McComedy on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And yeah, mashups, movie news, general movie adjacent mirth. You will find it on my podcast. Please hit subscribe. The state cinema at least remembered those who are too often forgotten. The fans of love, actually. The choir of St. Michael's College, Tenbury in Worcestershire, sing those ageless carols praising love, actually. Streaming in a manger when there was no room at the inn. I've just worked out why I can never find true love. I should just go to America. I'll get a girlfriend there instantly. From there instantly. I'm, I'm Colin, not upset. I'm just on the wrong continent. Moving on then to our regular in review section. This week, we each chose a Christmas film. We watched Happiest Season, Last Christmas, and It's a Wonderful Life, which shockingly, Breen had never seen before. I should just point out, I've never seen it either. So there's actually two of us who have never seen It's a Wonderful Life. But you have now. We ha- I have now. Yeah, exactly. And it is indeed a wonderful life. It is indeed. So we are starting with The Happiest Season. And Mercer, this was your pick. I just woke up thinking about going home with you and got very excited about Christmas. I get to go meet the people that made my favorite person. I'll always take December away over summer. Abby, you and Harper have a perfect relationship. She is my person and I really want everyone to know that. I want to marry her. I'm so excited. I can't believe I'm finally going to meet everyone. There's something that we should talk about. I didn't tell my parents I'm gay. So who do they think I am? This is Harper's orphan friend, Abby. Yes, of course. They're there. You're so brave. Okay, so yes, in The Happiest Season, a young woman with a plan to propose to her girlfriend while at her family's annual holiday party discovers her partner hasn't yet come out to her conservative parents. Uh, This is directed by Claire Duvall and it stars Kirsten Stewart and Mackenzie Davis. Who wants to start with this that isn't Hammond? Because I think I know what Hammond thinks of this. I liked it. I thought it was good. 
<laughs> Is that okay? Great. Brilliant. You can tell I don't do reviews on my podcast. Paul, what did you think? I thought this was clunky as hell. The script was diabolical. I thought the performances were weak, apart from Daniel Levy. It's a really important story to tell, mm. and I think it did it really badly. I don't know. It's, it's talking from the perspective of a straight man trying to review the story of a gay couple, mm. trying to be sensitive uh, about that struggle. And I felt, for me, the strongest part of that film was the speech that Daniel Levy gave where he was explaining how every gay person's coming out story is unique. Remind me, what did your parents say when you told them you were gay? Um, that they loved and supported me. That's amazing. My dad kicked me out of the house and didn't talk to me for 13 years after I told him. Everybody's story is different. There's your version, and my version, and everything in between. That speech was wonderful. Yeah. I think it was so truthful, and it, it illuminated that particular moment and that difficult moment in, in a lot of people's lives. But I felt that the, the story surrounding that was really poor. It was, I don't think, it just didn't, it didn't work for me. And, and my wife sat and watched all three of these films with me, and she is, loves pretty much every Christmas film that, that has ever existed, including all the Canadian TV uh, Christmas films that are, you know, Christmas films by numbers. Uh, if look at our Instagram post to see how you can do that with a Hallmark movie, by the way. It's, she loves all that, but she found this really poor as well, which for me is a damning indictment of that film. Yeah, It was such a disappointment from ostensibly what could have been a really really good story i actually like this because i thought it was funny start to finish it, mainly because of the ensemble yeah i thought daniel levy was funny i forget the name of the actress that plays the sort of uh, sister mary holland she was yeah. great as well i thought they were really funny it was badly made there's some blocking in this is awful it's horrendous isn't it? basic stuff like you're supposed to be looking at one character but there's someone mm. almost standing in their way so technically as a film yeah not great but it did have me laughing i will say I've been really on the fence about Kristen Stewart. I don't think she can act, or she has no charisma. No. Dan Levy, I also don't think can act, and that's based also on having watched um, Shit's Creek. But Dan Levy can't act, but he is funny, and he does have a sort of unique charisma about him. Whereas I think mm. uh, Kristen Stewart, I don't think she can act, and she doesn't have any charisma. It's And it's really apparent when she's acting opposite Mackenzie Davis, who's pretty much great in everything she does, and really kind of does her best to bring the film to life. Mm. Hammond, go on then. Much like Iron Man 3, this shouldn't be discussed as a Christmas movie. <laughs> because it's not a Christmas movie. You could have they they could have centered this story around any other important life event. They could have just had this in the summer with the father running for his for his mayoral campaign. And essentially that was that was the focus. It doesn't matter if this was Christmas, Easter, summer holidays. So the fact that it was at Christmas was entirely non-essential to what was happening in the film. Yeah, Christmas is about families. I'm not sure, together, though. So yeah. it, does tap it taps into that idea of, of having everyone in a, a sort of a pressure cooker of all these people who don't live together. All these people have gone off, they've done their separate lives, they've grown up. And then what Christmas does, it's the sort of, you know, it's the call to arms of getting everyone back into one location. And any kind of bubbling tension that existed in the family unit just comes back to the surface. So I don't think it would have worked during the summer. The call to arms of everyone getting everyone together was the fact that they had to be the perfect family for his election campaign. That could have happened at any point. Yeah, I don't think she would have taken her girlfriend home for her dad's campaign. If anything, yeah. that would have been an extra dimension that she, you wouldn't want to introduce because it would be too complex. Whereas Christmas, you would, I think. 
I mean, I think I'm a bit more on the fence to positive. I think that it does, despite the fact that it has some very odd direction and some scripting problems, I did find it funny. And Dan Levy and Mary Holland, like the relationship between the sisters, particularly Mary Holland's constant pursuit to sort of say that she's absolutely fine being the middle child that is underappreciated. <laughs> I, that running theme for the whole film, like I genuinely found it very, very funny. To shame Kirsten Stewart, that you're right, she is terrible in this. I think I've only seen her do a really genuinely good performance in Clouds of St. Maria. But I, outside of that, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I really don't know if she's actually capable of, of doing anything, Um, you know, approaching like just any kind of decent performance. The only other thing I think of is Personal Shopper. Yes. I, I, mean, I really want to see that because I heard that's really good and I heard she's really good in it. I can really think of. There's an interesting touch point between this and, and Last Christmas, which we'll come on to in a second. But I love how there's a really literal interpretation in both films of the subject matter. And in this, there's literally a scene where Kirsten Stewart is trapped in a closet. And that's when the film really lost me. I was, I was like, we get it. We get it. We do not need to be bludgeoned around the head by it. My expectations were, were low to good and it, and it kind of met them. But yeah, it's not something I'm going to rush back and see again soon. Great. Okay, so moving on into my pick, which was Last Christmas. Last Christmas gave you my heart this year. Last Christmas, I was really sick and almost died. Save me from tears. I don't tell people because they get weird. I'll give it to someone special. But I don't think you'll get weird. Well, I guess it would be nice. Vino? Bloody hell. Baby! Jenna, hey, it's me. Listen, I just really need a bed for the night. Just a... Hey, Elf! This is my little helper. I have nicknamed her Lazy the Elf because she appears never to work. That's me. She could also be called Crushing Disappointment the Elf. <laughs> so this film centres around Kate, a young woman who subscribed to bad decisions. Working as an elf in a year-round Christmas store is not good for a wannabe singer. However, she meets Tom there. Her life takes a new turn. For Kate, it seems too good to be true. So what are your thoughts on this? So you mentioned bad decision in your introduction of this film and my bad decision was watching this film. <laughs> uh, it was shut your mouth. <laughs> it was absolutely terrible. It, I, I mean, I'm genuinely stunned because obviously it's written by Emma Thompson, who I have the utmost admiration for. Mm. She's an incredibly talented woman, not only as an actress, she's just an overall, just amazingly talented woman and there were so many plot holes in this film i mean because the plot of home alone is absolutely solid. so i don't want to spoil this for people but i'd probably want to spoil it for people so they don't actually have to watch it but there's one particular scene when she goes to a flat with someone and when you get the reveal at the end of the film how on earth did she get into that flat <laughs> good point they do a flashback to that bit they flash back to the, the ice rink they flash back to all the other points and the bench but they don't flash back oh, to yeah. that apartment. I thought this was a terrible film. And my wife, I gave my same review, my wife, my wife just hated it as well. And she loves Christmas films and she thought it was terrible. I thought it was clunky. It was poor. I think performances were weak. It has all the best intentions to be, be a heartwarming, wonderful film. I just think that they took a very basic premise of two lines uh, from a song and then created a script around those two lines really poorly. I, I thought it was really... And literally as well. Really, yeah, <laughs> yeah, literally. And I thought it was really, really poor with a massive, massive plot hole that I've mentioned. But but going on from Herman's point, are you going into Christmas films expecting 100% realism? Because yes, case in point, Home Alone is so unrealistic. Is that what you really want from these things? Yeah, no, is that why people watch them? No, I, I want fantasy from a Christmas film. It was what we'll come on to with mm. this wonderful life. But I just thought, yeah, I just didn't think this was well executed at all. I think it was really poor. Well, I liked it. I thought it was <laughs> funny. I thought it was Christmassy. I got a little bit choked up at the end because I don't have a heart that's two sizes too small. Emma Thompson is an absolute joy. 
Volunteering at a homeless shelter. What did it mean? It means helping, Mum. You? Yes, helping. Yeah, <laughs> sure you were. And I just rescued an orphan from a burning car. Mm. I love her. And at the end, when she dropped the line about lesbian pudding, I laughed my ass off. I agree. Fair enough. Really enjoyed this film. I thought it was great. I partially agree with reservations, which is in that I figured out the twist from this from watching the trailer yeah yeah like it's obvious what's going to happen but weirdly it means when you watch the film you you sort of watch it more as like a modern it's a wonderful life where someone's like having their life fixed by this person that you know is a spiritual element so i actually sort of thought it weirdly worked at least if you know what the twist is going to be whereas it stops you from thinking of it as like a sort of weird richard curtis meets m night Shyamalan. Uh, Frankenstein, which is uh, effectively what it is. I thought the leads were charming. Amelia Clark was surprisingly good uh, in a rom-com role. Henry Golding, we know is good in this stuff from Crazy Rich Asians. And I know there's loads wrong with it, but I can't deny that I was entertained throughout. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. Although I don't think Amelia Clark is very good at all. I don't. I didn't believe her as a as sort of down to earth twenty something working in a retail store at all and speaking to three general managers as well how stressful was it when she left the premises unlocked (laughs) she would come back to no job the next day 100 i cannot believe that michelle yo kept her on i don't talk to but listen i i said don't talk to me you forgot to lock up don't deny it well i can pay you back you listen to me and you listen good you were great at your job when you started that's why i took you on full time You've got away with people, and I felt so lucky to have you. Thanks. But I don't feel lucky anymore. Like, straight away, it's like, you are unreliable, you are gone. Did you, what did you think of Emma Thompson? I love Emma Thompson, by the way, and I'm not going to bash her at all. But what did you think of her accent? Do you think it worked? Yeah. Because she started doing it, and I was like, I'm not sure about this. But within five seconds, I was like, oh, no, wait, this is amazing. When she's singing the old songs to to Amelia Clark, so, so funny. And also, like, weirdly, the Brexit stuff was just a little bit maybe tonally off with the the rest of the film. But I imagine that Paul Feig and Emma Thompson wanted to put something in there about that subject matter. It was probably filmed shortly after the referendum and they wanted to have something that sort of touched upon that. Uh, yeah, the very, very literal adaptation of the song Last Christmas by George Michael aside, I don't want to spoil it, but if you take the lyrics from that song, you'll work out very quickly what is happening in the film. I, yeah, I thought it was it was charming. It, you know, it has a lot of problems, but I, you know, I quite enjoyed it um, for what it is. So moving on into number three, and this was Paul's pick because he'd never seen it before. To my shame, yes. So it's a wonderful life. Well, who are you? I told you, George, I'm your guardian angel. What is it you want, Mary? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. Santa Mandel Hogwash. I wish I had a million dollars. The story of George Bailey, who fundamentally dedicates his life to looking after everybody in the small town of Bedford Falls to the detriment of his own life and aspirations of what he wanted to do, and uh, gets to a point in his life where 
he feels that he can't go on and the best thing for him to do for his family is to end his own life. And then his guardian angel decides to, on his wishes, show him what his what Bedford Falls would have been like without him having ever existed. What can you say that hasn't been written in volumes and essays and many, many, there, there obviously the many of people that have seen it, to my shame before myself, I can't believe it's taken this long in my life to get around to watching it. I'm just simply going to say It's a Wonderful Life is a wonderful film. James Stewart is astonishing in that performance uh, in the lead, and as is the entire cast. Dance by the light of the moon. What do you wish when you threw that rock? Oh, no. Come on, no. tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word, and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, right? I'll take it. I absolutely adore this film, and it concerns me that I've got through this many years in my life without watching it at least once before. I'll definitely be watching it again. I am amazed with you, Paul, because we've spoken before about you get really, really angry when there's a lack of justice served in films. But nothing happened to Potter, who stole $8,000 and tried to frame a man. I looked up the inflation rates, and that's the current day equivalent of about $100,000 he stole. Why are you not angry about this? You haven't mentioned this. You, you hate injustice. He's all right at the end. He's fine. It will come, it, it will come in the sequel. <laughs> I mean, I've seen this dozens of times. And whilst people always say it's the greatest Christmas film of all time, uh, it's not. It's excellent. Amazing. It, it was released in 1946. Uh, and it still stands up today. Loved the world over. I just think, no, I don't think anything else. I think it's great. I've seen it. I, I watch it every year. Considering it's a Christmas film, Christmas is barely in it i think it's bookended by christmas I'd say there's more christmas I mean, it's in iron man 3 than there is in it's a wonderful <laughs> life uh, there's far more snow in it's a wonderful life than iron man 3 that's what counts it's a classic i was lucky enough to watch this in the cinema so i watched the 4k restoration and it looks like it was shot yesterday i mean it just looks incredible yes it has some like tropes of filmmaking at the time there are some cuts that are very very aggressive but apart from that like it just looks timeless it's so well incredibly done i absolutely yeah i absolutely loved it again what more can you sort of say about it the snapshot of someone's life the choices that we all make and and what what impact it has on other people that's such a timeless story that it, it feels very prevalent today and i think it will all be relevant for the next hundred years onwards it's it's absolutely amazing film talking of like the eight thousand dollars like why was the man who's friends with a crow and squirrel entrusted with such a large amount of money i mean clearly the guy has no grasp on reality why would you then give him all this cash to then lose quickly across the road I, I think, that stressed I think me out with george bailey being you know, the james stewart character uh is wanting to think the best of people at all times i think that's, that's mm. where that was yeah. just trusted him to do a very simple task I did like the way the squirrel hugged him to console him. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting you say about the aggressive cuts because I noticed this as well, but I think maybe because of the age of the film, maybe it's due to print damage and they've just tried to edit yeah, it together maybe. maybe because some of it was very, I mean, most of the film was, was very good. Um, but I just think, yeah, it jumps and it just, I think maybe it's to do with some sort of historical damage to the print. That's all from a technical point of view. Yeah, no, I, that's probably very true. Another weird thing I noticed that, and it's, again, it's maybe just because of that's how things were done at the time, but James Stewart has a really weird kiss. 
He looks like he kind of want to eat Donna Reed's face. And then later <laughs> on... He cheeks and ears. <laughs> he does. And then he's like... And then he does exactly the same thing with his kids. He's hugging his kids. And he's like, looks like he's going to eat them. And at one point, I think he literally says, I could eat my kids. I, it's very weird. <laughs> I mean, in, in the mid 40s, you probably weren't allowed to, to kiss as people do today. It probably just wasn't the done thing. Mm. Aiden, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I like it. Although I found myself getting annoyed that he doesn't figure out what's happening sooner. Because it's really obvious what's happening. Well, who are you? I told you, George, I'm your guardian angel. Yeah, yeah, I know, you told me that. What else are you? What are you? You a hypnotist? No, of course not. Well, then why am I seeing all these strange things? Don't you understand, George? It's because you were not born. Well, if I wasn't born, who am I? You're nobody. You have no identity. Oh, what do you mean, no identity? My name's George Bailey. There is no George Bailey. And I'm just like, so I was watching going, how thick is this man? It's really, <laughs> if that happened to me, I'd, I'd be on it like that. I'd just be like, I know, I figured it out. There's a guardian angel. He's <laughs> showing me what my life would be like without me. It wouldn't be that much different. It would just be Ben getting into less arguments about Star Trek Into Darkness. But either way, <laughs> I'd figure it out. Cool. Okay. That's it. That's it. It's a wonderful life. It is a wonderful life indeed, unless you're Paul Breen and you just hate everything. Fuck you, Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on then to our Christmas special feature, and it's our end of year top five lists. Oh, I don't know if I'm woohooing this. I feel like this is going to be full of controversy and arguments, but let's move on. So how hard was this? I mean, I've written and rewritten and rewritten again, added films, taken films off, reworked my list. But I guess let's do it. We're very strictly keeping this at five. It, it was difficult. I mean, because it has been a great year for film. While we haven't had like these big blockbusters because they've all been pushed back to next year, just means that these smaller films have had a bit more light in the in the sun. And, and yeah, it, it's been an incredible year for film. Right. I am coming in then at number five with Jojo Rabbit. What a film. Great. Wow. What a movie. Yeah. Yes. Love this film. Taika Waititi definitely deserved the Oscar win for this. I thought it was absolutely great. It hit all the right notes for me. It was funny. It was sad. It was a telling of a World War II story from an angle that's not been told before. I really enjoyed it. I thought all the child actors in this film were incredible. It was great. There's, there's not really much more I can say about this. They meet someone special. Why does everyone keep telling me that? Who else tells you that? Everyone. Anyway. It's a stupid idea. You're stupid. Love is the strongest thing in the world. I think you'll find that metal is the strongest thing in the world, followed closely by dynamite and then muscles. So there's my number five, Jojo Rabbit. Amazing. I laughed, cool. I cried, I hurled. <laughs> <laughs> my number five, uh, we've actually talked about it already today. Uh, it did actually impact me a lot more than I thought, and it's Mank. Mm. Oh, wow. So it's gone to my number five as a technical exercise as much as anything else. I thought the performance is very, very, very solid. And as I say, viewing it as a fiction as opposed to a a factual event I think you can enjoy it more so that, that's gone into my number five my number five is is a film that you mentioned earlier on Paul it's actually Queen and Slim I was sort of umming and ahhing between the sort of fifth and sixth place on this list but it just took it um, the amazing score I, I don't know if you you like the music in that film but I just thought it's absolutely incredible it's brilliant. and the, the cinematography and especially the sound design the opening moments of the title credits play out and you don't see the two actors, but you just hear their initial conversation in the aftermath of what's just happened that opens the film. Yeah, a, a talk about a date gone bad. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So you turned to Tinder. Yeah. What made you pick me? I liked your picture. What? You had this sad look on your face. I felt sorry for you. Damn. Uh, essential viewing. Uh, fantastic film. Adam. 
My number five was The Invisible Man, which I thought was great. It's not a new thing, but there's quite a lot now of politically conscious horror films like Get Out, where there's some, he has some kind of comment on the modern world. And I love the fact that they took that story, told it from her perspective and made it about gaslighting. I, I thought it was great. And it also judges really well its shift from, is she going mad, isn't she, to being a more sort of full-blown special effects action horror thing. That could have gone badly. And I don't think it did. I, I thought it was solid. Awesome. Back to me for four. And I'm coming in at number four with Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman, which I really, oh, wow. really no. enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah, this isn't appearing on many top 10 lists that I'm reading throughout the year, but I really, really love this. And I loved that it was Guy Ritchie's kind of return to form. I really like his early stuff, Snatch, Lockstock, and it put me definitely in mind of all of that. We said it before, it was Guy Ritchie's greatest hits. And I just really, really enjoyed this. I rewatched it again recently and it holds up. I really enjoy this. I think that's the reason it's not an end of year list is as you said it's just basically a remix of previous Guy Ritchie films like it's it's very fun slick competent but maybe just isn't like original out there enough for people to to sort of include it but it'd definitely be in my top 10 I, I thought it, I had a great time both times I've watched this so my number four this year is Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things yes I love this film was well, as confusing as it was initially when I worked out what the story was actually about. It was sort of revelatory whilst watching the film and all the jigsaw pieces just clicked into place for me. I, th- I think it was, the performances were wonderful and I know there were extended takes and we've had this conversation that sometimes you felt they were a bit long. I, I love those interactions. Uh, I thought it was a really interesting, different, intelligent piece of filmmaking, very personal piece of filmmaking. And it really, really worked for me. I saw that like a month after it came out, so I'd seen everyone's reaction to it. So I sort of went into it quite, sort of expecting it to be much more of a slog than it was. And I'm with you. I thought it was it was great. Just the way it slowly unlocks itself is amazing. It's definitely in my top 10. It's not my top five. Oh, wow. It's in the top 10 this year for sure. I found it too long and unfocused, but I think it's something that I will go back to and appreciate more. Yeah, uh, yeah, a good choice. Yeah, definitely. I think it will be something we'll talk about in years to come. Number four, I've actually gone for the 40-year-old version, which we reviewed on the podcast uh, right. two episodes ago. I love this. I think Rada Blank as a voice is... I just cannot wait to see what she does next. Yeah. But as it is, this is an amazingly funny, uh, poignant film beautifully shot in black and white. New York has never looked better. The ensemble cast are absolutely great. It's a really, it's a really, really good film. And I love these films that sort of give a snapshot of people at different decades in their life. And this feels like a real interpretation of someone having a bit of a a crisis at 40 and their response to it. Wonderful film. Mm. Number four for me was Portrait of a Woman on Fire. This is a film about like themes and ideas and this unspoken love between these two women that slowly, you know, comes out because it's in uh, pre, it's in black and white times. And uh, it's great. It's just a great, a bit, a bit like I'm thinking of ending things. It just, it, the way it slowly unlocks its themes and sort of pulls you into the relationships is great. And it looks beautiful as well. Highly recommended. Right, so number three for me is Small Axe Mangrove. Ah, oh, yes. Right. This film massively affected me, and the performance by Sean Parks alone makes this a top five film yeah, for me. Yeah, totally. Fantastic movie. Absolutely fantastic. So my number three is the 40-year-old version. Oh, nice. Three for me is the manic and frantic uncut gems from earlier in the year. Oh. Adam Sandler as Howard Ratner, a high-stakes dueler who just makes bad decision after bad decision. It is the most stressful viewing experience I've had this year, but I think that's a that's a good thing. It just has such a frenetic energy to it that is just got this throbbing, synthastic score that pulsates throughout all the sort of really terrible decisions that Adam Sandler makes. 
crazy risk to gamble. So I want the Celtics to cover. I want the Celtics halftime. I want Garnett points and rebounds. What do you know? I don't know. I just know. Well, I'll tell you what I know. It's the dumbest fucking bet I ever heard of. I disagree. And its climax is just edge of your seat stuff. Fantastic. Looks amazing. Great, great film. My number three is, uh, I'm not a massive horror guy, but I think I might be becoming one because my favourite film last year was Midsommar. And my number three this year is Saint Maud. This is the British horror film set in Scarborough. It's brilliant. It's scary. What's genius about this film is it derives all of its scariest moments from scenes in which the main character is experiencing pleasure and ecstasy, not pain or terror. And I won't go much further into detail than that, but that should give you an idea of this film just turns the horror genre on its head and it's scary and involving and the performances are exceptional. Coming in at number two for me is Baby Teeth. Ah, we're dead on, mate. That's my number two as well. Amazing. Yeah. It, it just got me. This, this film was such an emotional ride for me. Elisa Scanlon in the main role was perfect. Ben Mendelsohn hits every note as he always does. Yeah, yeah, totally. What about you, Ben? I mean, I fell hard for it. This was a tough call between number... It was number one for a long time. I think the central relationship between the four stars is so wonderful, so grounded. And yes, there are some moments where it borders on whimsy, but the film always course corrects these and it steers the ship back into a grounded feel so that the emotional resonance, the emotional punches really stick their landing and you are just left absolutely gutted at the end of this film. The final moments with Ben Middleton as he's fiddling with the camera just again talking about it right now is getting me a bit teary i absolutely love this film it's just gorgeous so my number two jojo rabbit my number two is parasite yeah. i mean i guess it's one of those things everyone loves it don't they it's a root one opinion but it's for a reason which is that it is excellent a lot of people say oh it defies genre but i think it's really important to note with a film like parasite it only a genre filmmaker could make it only someone who's made snowpiercer and memories of murder could do this because the whole film is about toying with audiences expectation and that comes down to how the audience interpret what genre the film is that they're watching it's a masterstroke uh, and that's why it's my number one so my number one Yay, film this perfect. year is parasite is there anything else you want to add to that it was my greatest film of the year because i've seen nothing else like it can't mm. i can't describe what i was watching if somebody asked me even now after three or four watches oh what's parasite about i, I can't really tell you it's just a wonderful wonderful story just told brilliantly i love korean cinema and i love everything i love the journey that parasite took me on i thought it was fantastic Great. yeah nice. wonderful so my number one film was decided for me by Sam Mendes in January of this year. I sat down with the director of the feature film that I made. And we watched this film the day it came out in the UK. And when the credits finished rolling at the end, I turned to him and said, well, that's my film of the year sorted, is 1917. Colonel McKenzie is in command of the second. He sent word yesterday morning he was going after the retreating Germans. He is convinced he has them on the run. But if he can break their lines now, he will turn the tide is wrong. Your orders are to get to the second. Deliver this to Colonel McKenzie. It is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. Technically, it's a masterpiece. It is the epitome of what you can do with cinema and how immersive mm. a cinema experience can be. Yes, you can argue that one of the two lead performances isn't as strong as the other one, but as an immersive piece of cinema... Is that Dean Charles? Do you not think he's as good as um, McKay? McKay's much better, yeah. They're not, oh, okay. they're not bad, but uh, I think McKay's better. Mm. I think as as an immersive piece of piece of art, I think it's exceptional and is unrivaled and deservedly won the Oscar for 
yeah, best cinematography. That's my number one as well. For the longest time, I watched this and appreciated it more than I liked it because I was so wowed by the technical prowess of it. What Mendes and Deacons have done with that film in the way that it's cut together is incredible. But on subsequent viewings, the way that everything's framed, like particularly just the way that the shot composes people in the foreground and the way that it plays with light and contrast. The bit where McKay is dispatching a German soldier in the foreground whilst in the background, another German soldier is so, so close to discovering what's so going on. The way that shot is composed is absolutely breathtaking. And I think what this film does better than things like Dunkirk, for example, is it gives you a real sense of backstory to those two characters. Did you hear that story about Wilco? How he lost his ear? You know his girl's a hairdresser, right? She sends him over this hair oil. Smells sweet. So, he slathers it all over his barnet. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up and a rat is sitting on his shoulder, licking the oil off his head. <laughs> Wilco panics and he jumps up. <laughs> and when he does, the rat bites clean through his knee and runs off with it. <laughs> and I think the way those two characters interact and the sort of subtle notes you get to their backstory really makes you connect with them so that when bad things happen, uh, it, it is, is absolutely heartbreaking. The whole film, the momentum of it, the crescendo to the end where he goes over the top. It's, it, you're right, it's cinema. That's what cinema can do yeah. as, as a technical accomplishment in terms of script writing and just the way that it's put together. 1917 is a film that I will come back to many, many times and I absolutely love it. Yeah. Sorry, Ben, I get the final word. The best film of the year is Uncut James. <laughs> Oh, um, right. Okay. There we go. I will say one thing. I agree with everything you said about Uncut Gems before, but Uncut Gems has the independent movie equivalent of the scene in Aliens when the acid blood drops at the end and they realize yeah. the queens come home with them. And that is Adam Sandler chucking the bag of money out the window because you're just at that point where you're like, we're done. The stress is over. We can all go home. It's fine. And he does that. And you're just like, what the living fuck is wrong with you? You absolutely <laughs> And that whole final 20 minutes is, as I say, it's the art house equivalent of, of uh, Sigourney Weaver saying, get away from her, you bitch. It's absolutely <laughs> Nice. Brilliant. That's it. That's the year all wrapped up. We did it. Perfect. We are the gold So we'll be back in the new year reviewing two films that I have to pick. So my first pick is a film called Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution. And this is released this year on Netflix. It's a documentary, so I want to start the year with a documentary. And Barack and Michelle Obama, interestingly, are executive producers on this. My second choice is Hillbilly Elegy, starring Amy Adams and Glenn Close, released this year on Netflix. And that's it. That almost wraps up the show. But I do obviously have a question which we'll end this podcast with and we'll start the new year with. So in the 1939 Wizard of Oz, there is a famous scene in the poppy field where it begins to snow heavily. After this, the characters very happily skip towards the castle. Why should they perhaps not have been so happy? And that does bring us to the end. We've made it. We've got through 2020, podcast-wise anyway. <laughs> Physically, we've still got another three weeks of this shit show to get through. But Aiden, thank you so much for joining us, mate. It's been a real pleasure. Paul, Ben, thank you for entertaining me 
throughout all the lockdown and all the shit we've dealt with through 2020. A very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you and all your loved ones. And uh, yeah, I am guess we'll see each other again next year. Indeed, yes. Thank you, everybody. Aidan, thank you for joining us on the pod at the end of the year. It's been a, a pleasure having you on the on the pod and enjoy going to enjoy listening to your podcast going forward. To everybody listening, thanks again, as always. Be good. If you can't be good, be careful. Have as merry a Christmas as you possibly can in this shit show of a year. Hopefully, 2021 is going to be uh, an upturn for everyone and we can go back to some level of normality at some point but no one can say that this podcast will ever be normal (laughs) yeah happy christmas everyone is listening and a merry new year and yeah let's hope that 2021 brings things full circle and we can head back to the cinemas Uh, thanks for having me on guys really enjoyed it uh happy christmas and a merry new year happiest seasons and we'll see you all in 2021 you have been listening to Have You Seen This with Ben Hammond, Paul Breen, and myself, Ben Mercer. The main theme tune is The Godzilla Theme by Akira Kirafubi, edited by Ben Mercer with beats supplied by Lander. The intro Christmas jazz was composed by Dan Yankee and is called Snowscape and is supplied by the Free Music Archive. If you like the pod, please subscribe, rate us five stars, or maybe as it's Christmas, even consider giving us a review. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can get us at seenthispod at gmail.com, that's seen spelled S-C-E-N-E, or like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash this spelt s-c-e-n-e all views opinions and expletives festive or otherwise are those of their hosts iron man 3 definitely not a christmas movie i mean for a start it is is. it's set at christmas jarvis drop my needle loved you in a christmas story by the way Hey, did you see your Christmas present? Yes, I did. I, I don't know how I could have missed that Christmas present. Here's a little holiday greeting I've been wanting to send to the Mandarin. Also, it's Christmas time and the rabbit's ticket. Done. Sorry. Hey, kid, what would you like for Christmas? I intend to finish this before Christmas. Mr. Stark, I'm about to eat honey roast ham surrounded by the agents. Merry Christmas, buddy. You're waiting for us. Christmas. Taking church. You know what to do. The clean slate protocol, sir? Screwed, it's Christmas. Yes. Yes. And so, as Christmas morning began, my journey had reached its end. You see.